Right, you're watching First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos in Dubai. Great to have you with us. And we begin with important new economic numbers out of the United States. The U.S. has just released its latest look at the state of the American jobs market. It's a crucial piece of information for economists looking for signs of slowing growth as the Fed begins hiking rates. Now, 390,000 jobs were added last month, a bit higher than anticipated. The numbers show that the U.S. jobs market remains very healthy, but there are signs that jobs growth is beginning to ease a bit. Meanwhile, U.S. unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. U.S. futures uh, have been trending lower all morning and Wall Street futures are still pointing to a lower open as well. As you can see, the Dow Jones slated to open down seven tenths of a percent. Uh, S&P also down one percent right now these are the futures rahul solomon joins me now rahul let's break this down i just had a quick look over these numbers much better than anticipated you have a very steady unemployment rate at 3.6 percent and i have to say notable gains in some of those sectors and it's still within hospitality and leisure i guess the question is what is going to happen in the future but before we get into the future let's talk about what you've picked up in the latest reports yeah, let's talk about the now, Eleni. You just talked about futures saying that they were lower, yeah. and we were watching them as these numbers crossed, and they pretty much stayed the same. So uh, no big surprises here, I think, is the headline. When we look at the numbers, uh, yeah, about 390,000 jobs added. And to put that in context, Eleni, for the last 12 months, the number started with a four, began with a four. So for at least 12 months, we have seen uh, more than about 400,000 jobs added. So it's still a strong number, but it could be going in the right direction in terms of what the Fed wants to see in terms of what uh, the White House here wants to see. Of course, we got that op-ed from President Biden earlier this week talking about the fact that we could see slowing job growth. Of course, uh, the idea and the priority for both the Federal Reserve and the White House is that they want to lower inflation. And so they want to see sort of a little bit more balance in terms of the jobs market. But yeah, let's go through today's report. So the unemployment rate pretty much staying 3.6 percent. That's about the third month in a row we're seeing that. Uh, Employment and leisure and hospitality, as you mentioned, Eleni, Uh, That increased by about 84,000 in May. Employment and professional and business services rose by about 75,000 in May. So, again, still a very strong jobs market. But I think the devil is in the details, as they say. It it could be going in the right direction in terms of uh, cooling sort of the demand for workers right now. We have heard uh, Fed Chairman Powell talk about how there are practically two open jobs right now for every one person looking for a job and how that could be perhaps inflating wages. And so they want to see some more equilibrium in the jobs market. Uh, And this could be one indication that it's beginning to happen. Yeah, really fascinating, right? And this is as we're anticipating a recession and we're hearing warning bells and, you know, very big concerns about what the inflationary outlook is going to do to the economy. So time will only tell. But I have to say, we really do care how Elon Musk feels. And he's weighing in on the state of the economy and he says this doesn't feel good. Tell me what he said and, you know, whether we should be paying attention to his statement. Yeah, it does feel like any time Elon Musk speaks, it uh, gets quite a bit of attention, but even more so this week, Eleni, because of the the perspective and the context in which it comes. So uh, Elon Musk, this according to Reuters, putting out a statement to employees at Tesla that he has a super bad feeling about the economy and that he wants to cut about 10 percent of jobs at the electric car maker. Eleni, I have to point out in mid-April during earnings for Tesla, we heard him talk about 
about record profitability and the demand for uh, the product. So this is not necessarily a reflection of profitability or demand, but it does make you scratch your head if a short time ago, Elon Musk was talking about uh, how they were able to pass on increases to consumers because demand was so strong and record profitability. And now we're hearing him say that he has a super bad feeling about the economy. Of course, these comments coming just a few days after uh, you and I spoke about Jamie Dimon sort of updating his forecast and calling for perhaps an economic hurricane uh, warning saying brace yourself and that he doesn't know uh, if what we might experience in the U.S. economy and perhaps even globally is going to be uh, a smaller hurricane or something more along the lines of Superstorm Sandy. So uh, the warnings appear to be growing louder and coming from uh, quite prominent people in the business world. Uh, and the, the clouds appear to be getting darker, Eleni. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got inflation. That's a big risk. You've got high oil prices and you've got um, you know, the Fed hiking rates. It's just it's an interesting combination, Rahel. It's I'm sure you and I are going to have a lot of these conversations. <laughs> It, it is, and we will. Yeah. But, Eleni, you know, I should say that the asterisk to Jamie Dimon's comments were that the, the strong part of the economy yeah. was the jobs, was the labor market, and we're seeing that today as well. Yeah. Interesting times. Rahel Solomon, always good to see you. Thank you so Likewise. much. Now, as President Biden says, inflation is his top economic priority. He's now planning to meet with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman later this month. This comes after OPEC and its allies decided yesterday to increase oil production by 200,000 barrels per day in July and in August. The White House praises Saudi Arabia's role in the decision, hailing it as a diplomatic breakthrough. Now, today marks 100 days of the war in Ukraine. The country's military says it's now pushing back Russian assaults in some areas in eastern Ukraine as heavy fighting continues in the region. Ukrainian forces also claiming they have made progress during counterattacks in the southern region on Kherson. Matthew Chance is in Kyiv with more. Well, it has been 100 days now since Russia launched this attack on Ukraine. I think the fact that it's lasted for so long and that Ukraine has not folded in the face of this Russian assault has surprised many, not least in Moscow. But of course, the price has been high. Ukrainian officials say about 20% of the country has fallen under Russian control, an area the size of Luxembourg, the Netherlands and Belgium put together. The death toll has been catastrophic too. There are no exact figures, but when you combine civilians and soldiers on both sides, it's estimated tens of thousands of people have died and in some of the most appalling scenes witnessed in Europe for a generation innocent civilians seem to have been targeted in alleged war crimes something that's going to keep prosecutors busy potentially for years to come fleeing the violence millions of people have been forced to escape their homes Ukrainian officials say the fighting has displaced 12 million Five million have left the country altogether, either to Europe or to Russia, to where Ukraine officials say people are being forcibly evacuated. At the moment, the military focus has shifted to the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, where Russian officials, Russian forces and their proxies are battling for control of Severodonetsk, taking more than 80 percent of that city. But elsewhere in the east, Ukrainian troops say they're making counterattacks to recapture territory with the help of sophisticated weaponry being supplied by the United States and other Western countries. Ukrainian officials are pleading 
for even more of that military support, to allow them to continue to defend their country for another 100 days and, if necessary, beyond. Matthew Chance, CNN, Kyiv. Meanwhile, in Russia, the head of the African Union meeting with President Vladimir Putin to ask him to lift the blockade of grain and fertilizer stocks from Ukraine. This as Africa faces a food crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. David McKenzie now joins me uh, from Johannesburg. David, uh, good to see you. Here's also the reality. A lot of African leaders have not voted to condemn uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I guess the question is, do you think we'll see a breakthrough in this meeting? I'm not so sure if we'll see one in the short term, but you can uh, expect, Eleni, that the Russian president will try to shift blame away from his own actions in terms of blockading Odessa and other ports to stop millions and millions of tons of grain from leaving uh, Ukraine to go into export to around the world, including countries in Africa. And yes, there are certain countries in the continent that are facing a food crisis. Uh, and this is a cascading effect that could only get worse if this conflict drags out. First, uh, we believe the prices will continue to increase on top of inflationary pressure. And then you could see a scenario that you'll even have a lack of food for distribution, both for uh, export and for the aid groups. So, you know, the World Food Programme had called the blockade uh, a declaration of war on global food security just this week. Eleni? Yeah, and uh, David, very quickly, could you give me a sense of the pricing on the continent, how it's going to affect in real time some African countries? Well, there, as you know, more than 50 African countries all have different impacts from this conflict. I think the early impacts will be seen in the North Africa region, also parts of the Middle East and Asia, Central Asia particularly, because they have such a great dependency on Ukrainian and Russian grain and uh, oil, uh, sunflower oil that is, uh, you'll also see an ongoing effect because of fertilizer. Uh, Russia is one of the biggest producers of fertilizer, critical for global agriculture. Uh, just this week, the head of the African Union was complaining that the impact of the uh, restrictions on the SWIFT banking system has uh, constrained African countries in particular from purchasing key agricultural products. Uh, there is this chink in the armor now in terms of global solidarity uh, with Ukraine because of the impacts, I think, that individual countries, particularly here in Africa, will be feeling in the months ahead. Eleni? Uh, uh, David, it's such a good point. The inflationary impact is going to be Big. David McKenzie in Johannesburg, thank you. Now, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Some breaking news from Germany. At least three people have been killed and more injured after a train derailed in the south of the country. Local police say the train was traveling towards Munich and we'll keep you updated uh, as we get more details on that story. Right, so U.S. President Joe Biden made an emotional appeal to lawmakers last night, pressing Congress to pass gun control laws. His speech followed a string of horrific mass shootings. He said too many everyday places in America have become killing fields. The Gun Violence Archive reports that there have been 233 mass shootings in the U.S. since the start of this year. 
Now, police in Hong Kong are warning people not to hold public commemorations of the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Activists have uh, been organizing vigils uh, among every year, almost every year, on the 4th of June. But authorities have recently banned the gatherings, citing COVID concerns. Police will do the same this year and are threatening five-year prison terms for what they call illegal assemblies. Beginning June 8th, unvaccinated travelers flying into South Korea will no longer need to quarantine. Seoul's uh, Incheon International Airport will return to 24-hour operation for the first time since April 2020. COVID testing will still be required prior to a visit and again within three days of arrival. It's a game of geopolitical chess in the South Pacific, and China just came up short in the latest round. This week, Beijing failed to get what it wanted in its sweeping attempt to extend its influence in the region. The U.S. and Australia are now racing to outplay China and make sure the strategic region stays out of its orbit. Ivan Watson has the details in this report. To many outsiders, island nations in the South Pacific are a tropical paradise, exotic and remote, and yet the focus of intense diplomatic activity from China, part of a Chinese push for influence that's turning the Blue Pacific continent into a zone of geopolitical competition between China and its Western rivals. China's foreign minister has been leading a delegation on a whirlwind 10-day tour across the South Pacific meeting face-to-face or virtually with officials from at least 11 different Pacific Island nations. Most of these countries' entire populations are dwarfed by even a small Chinese city. Don't be too anxious. Don't be too nervous. Because the common development of the prosperity of China and all other developing countries would only mean greater harmony, greater justice and greater prosperity of the whole world. The last time great powers competed in the South Pacific was World War II, when the U.S. and its allies fought a grinding, island-hopping military campaign against Japan. Since the war, many Pacific islands still have close ties to the U.S. and its Western allies. But in March, that status quo shaken with the leak of a secret security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands signed the following month. It allows the Solomon's government to call for help from Chinese police and armed forces. In May, the release of another proposed document, the Chinese Pacific Island Country's Common Development Vision, a sweeping vision slammed by the president of the Federated States of Micronesia. In this letter, he accuses China of offering attractive economic assistance as part of a bid to take control of security, communications infrastructure, and fisheries in the islands. Just days after being sworn in to her new job, Australia's foreign minister rushed to shore up Western support for the region. And Australia will be a partner that doesn't come with strings attached, nor imposing unsustainable financial burdens. We're a partner that won't erode Pacific priorities or Pacific institutions. During his visits, China's foreign minister refused to take questions from independent journalists. That no questions will be asked at this press conference. Prompting a boycott from reporters in the Solomon Islands, like Dorothy Wickham. We wanted our government to remember 
that we were a democratic society. I mean, they are in parliament, voted in democratically by the people. And if they were to go around signing agreements with foreign powers, then at least our people should be informed. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister of Fiji has a warning. Geopolitical point scoring means less than little to anyone whose uh, community is slipping beneath the rising seas, whose job has been lost to a pandemic. On Monday, Chinese diplomats backtracked, offering a softened vision of Chinese influence in the Pacific. Expect more visits from high-level delegations in the months ahead as foreign governments scramble to secure influence in the South Pacific. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Right, and straight ahead, a closer look at today's stronger-than-expected U.S. jobs report. What does it mean for Chair Jay Powell and President Biden as they ramp up their battle against inflation? And we'll speak to J.P. Morgan's chief U.S. economist after the break. Welcome back. U.S. futures still pointing to a lower Wall Street open after the release of today's stronger-than-expected U.S. jobs numbers. S&P 500 pointing down almost 1%. Dow Jones also under pressure. All right, so those job numbers, really important. Um, 390,000 jobs were added to the American economy in May. It was far higher than most had anticipated. Wage growth also remains very robust. Now, all this is pointing to a still solid U.S. jobs market, even as the U.S. Federal Reserve begins raising rates to help cool down inflation. Earlier this week, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warned of an economic hurricane that he believes is brewing as the Fed tightens and inflation remains high. Michael Ferrali joins me now. He is the chief U.S. economist for J.P. Morgan. Michael, really good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. These numbers um, even were higher than what you had anticipated. You had expected an increase of 375,000. We're sitting at 390,000. What are you reading into the latest jobs figures? So I would say that's a pretty modest surprise in the grand scheme of things. But overall, I thought today's numbers uh, were actually kind of welcome insofar as, yes, we got stronger than expected job growth, but we also had a uh, no change in the unemployment rate. We and others had expected that to decline. Uh, so that's been steady at 3.6 over the past uh, three months. And I think that'll also be welcome to the Federal Reserve, who uh, has been hiking rates, as you say, to cool the economy and really to prevent the unemployment rate from falling further. Yeah. And while average hourly earnings and wage growth remain strong, it has cooled some over the past several months. So some of that inflationary pressure, I wouldn't say it's going away, but it's at least moving marginally in the right direction. Uh, the Federal Reserve probably would like to see the unemployment rate actually move up modestly. So to, to the extent we actually got to stop declining, I think that's probably something they would, uh, they'd would they like to see here. Again, even though we got a little bit stronger than uh, anticipated uh, uh, job growth last month. Yeah, it's a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, what does this tell you? I mean, I understand these are for the month of May. We need to look uh, ahead as well. But what does this tell you about what is to come? Because there's talk of recession. There's fear of the impact of inflation on spending power. Mm -hmm. If we dig in further into these numbers, the sectors that really did well was sort of leisure, retail, still looking pretty robust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I think what you're seeing in the industry detail is still... Uh, a lot of that reopening 
um, hiring uh, occurring, which is a long, drawn-out process. You got to remember, we're still over 800,000 jobs below where we were prior to the pandemic. So I think what you're seeing in the industry data is a lot of that normalization of sectoral uh, activity. Uh, and I think in terms of you know, recession concerns, I don't think anyone's concerned about you know, recession May or, or June. But as we look ahead and the Fed does need to continue to uh, increase interest rates, uh, that that eventually will um, uh, you know, bring the economy uh, to a standstill. Now, I think what this tells you about that is uh, most interesting, as I said, in terms of what it tells you about the Fed's, where the Fed is going to have to go, right? So we know they're raising rates again, 50 base, uh, half percent in both uh, June and July. And then the, the, the question really becomes what happens. The next live meeting after that is September. What does this tell us? You know, not much, but it is, you know, to the extent we didn't see that, that further decline in the unemployment rate may reduce some of the odds that they have to go 50 uh, or half percent in September. And to the extent the Fed can go a little more gradually, that would be reduce some of those recession odds as we look out several months. Yeah. So, so Michael, I have to ask you, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon coming out and saying, of course, the CEO of JP Morgan coming out and saying, um, look, there's uh, an economic hurricane brewing. When you were listening to that, were you surprised or is this because he's been looking at some of your forecasts and forecasting that he's making that statement? Look, I think it's we've been warning about recession risks ever since the Fed had to really kind of step on the brakes a little more aggressively here. And historically, when the unemployment rate gets very low and the Fed starts raising interest rates, that's how you almost always get into recessions. There's a few exceptions when you have a pandemic. But generally, if you look in the post-war era, recessions follow uh, Fed hiking cycles and the Fed's in a hiking cycle now. So it's you know, I think a very warranted concern. And, and some of our models would suggest over the next two years, the probability of recession is, is above 50%. Now, what the Fed, you know, needs to do yeah, here, as hu- you said, it's Is about- it a hurricane? Is it an economic hurricane? Would you use that language as an economist? I know you like focusing I mean, on the numbers, but, you yeah. know. I mean, I think that's a, uh, one way of describing, uh, you know, a recession. Recessions are not fun. Yeah. Uh, the unemployment rate generally goes up. Yeah. Uh, you know, considerably, and, and for those people who experience that, that's certainly uh, a very, um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, distur- uh, uh, worrisome situation. Absolutely. So, uh, but, you know, what I would say is, as you said, it's a balancing act. Uh, what the Fed has to do here is get growth yeah. to slow, but not slow so much that we turn into negative territory. So Elon Musk also said he has a very bad feeling about the economy. You guys are trying to do your modeling. You're trying to see all these externalities that are emerging because you don't really know what will happen in terms of supply demand. Are you also feeling relatively uneasy in terms of the modeling you have right now that they're basically, you know, based on a lot of things that we don't really know um, as yet. We don't know how this war is going to play out. We don't know what kind of supply disruptions are going to emerge. I mean, our concerns about downside growth risks are certainly above, well above average compared to, um, you know, I've been here 17 years. I would say this is a period when it does look like, you know, the, the outlook is certainly very cloudy when it comes to prospects for growth, not only the Fed hiking rates, but as you say, uh, the hit to purchasing power from higher energy prices, uh, the slowdown we're seeing in China. Uh, so there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of worries out there. And certainly, you know, so far we've been talking mostly about the um, 
the domestic risk from higher interest rates from the Fed. But then we look globally, and, and uh, it's not you know, a supportive backdrop right now. So uh, I think it's, it's not unreasonable to be uh, a little bit worried about the outlook, certainly when you look out at least 12 months. Exactly. Where is that crystal ball? Anyway, Michael Ferrari, thank you so much. Really good to thank see you. you. Okay, and still to come on CNN, parents across the U.S. are still struggling to find baby formula as the shortage in the country drags on. I speak to the CEO of one of the nation's newest formula manufacturers about helping meet demand. That's coming up next. Right, the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange trade has officially begun. And um, it's Friday. It is uh, a down day, down eight-tenths of a percent. Right, so, and of course, we've been expecting this all day. The futures have been showing a much lower open. This is despite the fact that we had much stronger than expected reads on American jobs growth numbers, suggesting that the U.S. Federal Reserve still has a way to go before it cools down the economy enough to ease inflationary pressures. Now, Tesla shares are lower after Reuters reported that Elon Musk is looking to cut some 10 percent of the company's workforce. Musk also reportedly saying that he has, quote, a super bad feeling about the economy. Tesla shares down 6%. Another Western tech giant is leaving China. Amazon said it is shutting down its Kindle bookstore in the world's second largest economy. Kindle users will not be able to buy online books in the country starting June next year. The exit adds to a number of corporate retreats from the country as it fights to get a handle on the pandemic. We've got Selena Wang joining us now. Selena, give us details about Amazon's decision. Well, Eleni, this just adds to that growing list, as you say, of these American tech giants that are either scaling back or pulling out completely from China. So Amazon made this announcement that it is going to be halting sales of its devices in the country, and it's also going to stop its Amazon Kindle digital business in China starting from next year. Now, this comes on the heels of you've got LinkedIn, Yahoo, Airbnb, all of these tech companies in recent months scaling back or completely pulling out from China. This is as you are seeing more pressure on both local and foreign tech companies in China from authorities. Part of that is part of the government's tightening control over content and data collection. Now, when it comes to Amazon in particular, in addition to the growing difficulty in the regulatory environment, they've also been struggling for years against their homegrown competitors, including Alibaba and JD.com. The market as well for these Kindle e-readers, for these digital books, that's also been falling as well for the sales of their devices. So also a growing market, even though this was a prominent business for them inside China. Now, Amazon has been in China for many, many years. But in 2019, they actually stopped their online domestic marketplace as that growing domestic competition was starting to tighten up. Now, this is what Amazon said in its statement, however, because the company does still have some business lines operating in the country, including advertising and cloud computing. Amazon said, quote, Amazon China's long-term commitment to customers will not change. We have established an extensive business foundation in China and will continue to innovate and invest. Now, also, Eleni, according to Reuters, importantly, the company says that it is not pulling out because of censorship concerns or because of government pressure. 
But the broader context here, of course, is that many, many websites and apps, media companies are blocked, banned from China, including Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, countless others. Domestic companies, they have thrived within this walled environment, but they too face heavy censorship that is only getting more difficult. Eleni. Celia Wang, good to see you. Thank you so much. Now, millions of parents across the United States are still struggling to find baby formula. The shortage highlights the issues the U.S. has depending on a handful of manufacturers for formula. Byheart is hoping to fill that gap. The New York-based company is the only fifth, is only the fifth infant formula um, manufacturer to receive regulatory approval in the United States and the first new manufacturer of baby formula in the country in 15 years. The company launched in March, right around the time Abbott, one of the nation's largest formula manufacturers, initiated a voluntary recall of its formula. Ron Baldegren, the co-founder and CEO of Byheart, joins me now. Uh, Ron, really good to see you. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Um, I want to get into how you started this business, and I know that you're the new player on the block, but it's taken you many years to be able to do what you're doing right now. How difficult was it to break into a market that was dominated by a handful of players? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks very much for for having me. Um, You know, I'll first say these are unusually disturbing times for babies and their parents. Um, You know, Mia, my co-founder and sister, and I are in it. You know, my wife and I have a two and a half year old and now a seven day old baby. Mia has a 10 month old currently drinking by heart. And, you know, in a time of such joy and sleep deprivation and all the wonders of new parenthood to also need to be worried like so many parents are across the country, whether our babies will have, you know, access to the very best nutrition is scary and simply unacceptable. Um, As you pointed out with our launch earlier this year, we became the first new infant formula manufacturer to be registered with FDA in over 15 years. And with that came a big responsibility. You know, all of us at Byheart, from corporate to our manufacturing in Reading, Pennsylvania, are working tirelessly so that no parents need to feel that anxiety. But we're also reminded constantly of why we started this company. You know, in a time of crisis, there's appropriately a lot of focus on getting formula on the shelf. But for us, it was never about just getting formula on a shelf. Parents deserve better. It was about getting the highest quality formula on the shelf. Infant formula is a critically important first food, sole source nutrition, while all baby systems are developing. We started this company because we are sitting in the most exciting era with breakthroughs in nutrition science. We know more about breast milk than we ever have, what drives the immune system, the gut microbiome, makes breast milk easy to digest when formula is often not. There has never been a bigger opportunity to create formulas that come closer to breast milk, but until now, these breakthroughs are kind of outpacing new products getting into the hands of babies because the barriers to innovating in this category are so high, as you pointed out. You know, six years yeah. ago, we decided so, to take an approach that no new entrant has in decades, and that was to really build entirely from scratch because it's the only way to truly innovate. Ron, I, you know, I'm so glad that you, you said that this is, you know, one of the most delicate moments for a mother, right? And here's the point. You want to know that you'll be able to get quality food for Good. your child um, and, and and yeah and you and you get onto you get to the shelf and you're expecting it to be there to be frank i think the world was completely shocked that the united states was running out of uh, baby formula 
you opted not to work with established manufacturers because they wanted to control the ingredients and that wasn't your game plan. Tell me about what you discovered in that process and the lack of innovation that is occurring despite the knowledge, the new knowledge we have about breast milk. I'm so sorry, somebody just chimed into the uh, Skype. Could you repeat the question? I think there was a disruption in the Skype. Yeah. Okay. So you opted not to work with established established manufacturers at this point in time because they wanted to control the actual actual formula, despite the knowledge, the new knowledge that we have of breast milk. Give, tell me, give me a sense of what they were thinking. Well, look. I think um, you know this is you know sole source nutrition for babies. This is appropriately the highest barrier to entry food in the world, the only food that requires clinical studies and FDA registration for real novel infant formulas. And, you know, many, uh, you know, every company in, you know, the last 15 years who have entered the space have kind of taken a similar path. And that was to outsource to the one and only contract manufacturer and rely on sort of an expedited path to market. Um, that really only enables kind of incremental change to existing recipes. Now, we at ByHeart got into this to really drive meaningful change and translate the major advancements in breast milk research and nutrition science into the very best products for babies. And in our view, there was only one way to do that, and that was to build from scratch. And so we brought together the world's experts to completely rewrite the recipe and conducted a major breakthrough clinical study to prove our benefits. You know, as parents ourselves, we wanted evidence, not just claims. And we acquired our manufacturing facility and built direct control of our end-to-end process to really ensure highest quality ingredients and full accountability to parents from farm to formula. Yeah, let's talk about farm, uh, farm to formula. The value chain is quite complex because it's not that easy to get new players into the market because everyone's thinking about market share being readily available. But here we've seen uh, the worst case scenario playing out and the need to have more players in the market. Y- yes, uh, you know, again, in the time of you know, crisis, there's a lot of focus on getting product on the shelf. Right, but we need to remember that this is sole source nutrition in a time when all of baby systems are developing. And therefore, um, it is critical to provide really the highest quality and best nutrition. You know, nutrition in this critical time of development needs to work much harder for us. And so, our approach was really a belief that the more you control the process, the more you can impact the quality of the formula. And so we wanted to go out and buy our manufacturing facility in Reading, Pennsylvania, directly handpick and source all of our own ingredients right from partners that we know and trust to ensure the highest quality ingredients. And we wanted to work with the experts to really um, translate really major advancements in breast milk research into a formula that would get closer than ever before to breast milk and, um, you know, kind of be this more kind of wholesome and functional alternative to breast milk. Yeah, Ron, and just very quickly, do you think that um, the United States, in terms of supply dynamics right this minute, are in a better position with new entrants like you in the market? 
Look, I, you know, we participated uh, yesterday in the administration's roundtable, um, and what I heard at the meeting uh, with the president was encouraging. You know, I applaud all the other four companies in the space that are ramping up production and doing the utmost in this area. Uh, the administration's efforts have been commendable as short-term solutions to a very pressing issue. You know, import and some of these steps that have been taken, um, you know, will be helpful in getting formula into the hands of babies quickly. Um, our approach has been one to build, you know, sustainable solution. You know, this supply chain in the U.S. is far too fragile. We can't be in a situation where one company has a recall and 40% of the country is without sole source nutrition. And so we as one of just five companies in the country that manufacture infant formula are taking this responsibility very seriously. And we are investing heavily into initiatives that collectively can allow up to another 500,000 new families to get fed even above our initial plan. Yeah. You know, we are investing heavily in our manufacturing in Reading, Pennsylvania with a $30 million new investment. We are hiring aggressively. We're adding a whole new shift. We're moving to 24 seven. Uh, we are moving to expand our manufacturing footprint um, and so there isn't a lever that we aren't pulling, and we're doing that all here in the United States. Ron, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really good to have you on the show. Much appreciated. And thank you for you at home uh, joining us uh, on today's show. Marketplace Europe is up next. From me, Eleni Jokas, take care. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.